May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. This evening, we're looking at a parable that has become so familiar that I fear we've lost the ability to maintain the shock of it. It's become kind of an easy story, and it's an obvious one with an obvious application, isn't it? I think if we allow this text to sort of sit on us a little bit, we're going to realize that this story is not easy. It's masterful. It has a certain simplicity to it, but it's not easy and it's not obvious and it's far more shocking than anyone who lives in a city where there's a hospital called Good Samaritan could possibly appreciate. One of the reasons that this story isn't easy is because it's a bit like Inception. Anybody seen it? No spoilers. But it's a story within a story, isn't it? within another story, within another story. There's the canon of Scripture that is telling a story. And there's the Gospel according to Luke, which is telling a story. And there's this story that Luke records for us in which Jesus tells a story. There's a lot going on. So we need to remember that Luke is writing an account of the ministry and work of Jesus that is faithful to reality, and he is writing it in such a way as to force a response from his listeners, from his readers. He's getting us to come face to face with the claims of Christ, and then forcing us to choose. Are we going to accept his claims or reject them? And he often does this by bringing us into contact with characters that are a lot like us. And this lawyer is a lot like us. Luke reveals to us the motivation of this man at two different points in this story. First, he approaches Jesus to test him. He wants to get Jesus to pick a side. Is it people that keep the law that will attain life in the new age? Where does anything go? And then when Jesus affirms this man's position that, yes, in order to attain life in the coming age, one must fulfill the law, namely, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, we're told that the lawyer just can't quite help himself. He wants to justify himself. And so he asks another question. If you've been with us the last few weeks, then you'll remember that in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he reminds us that those who seek to be justified by their keeping of the law must limit the law's requirements right? So this lawyer asks the question that has been at the root of humanity's self-destruction since the very beginning. Yeah, but who exactly is my neighbor? When Cain murdered his brother, God comes to him and asks after Abel, and Cain replies, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, who really is my neighbor? In Jesus' own day, there were all sorts of labels for different groups of Jewish people, and that's why the lawyer is asking this question. Because there were those that kept themselves so pure that they removed themselves from the surrounding culture and went way out into the desert. And they would, they would say that only those who are as pure as they were were truly their neighbors. 
Then there were those that accommodated the surrounding culture. There were even those that profited off the Roman occupation of Israel. And there were those that with seething bitterness would die in attempts to throw off the rule of empire. So who exactly is your neighbor? I think it's fairly obvious that things haven't really changed much. As tragic events this last week have revealed once again, we like to stick tight within our own groups. Because when we stay within our own groups, we have this echo chamber that reminds us that we're in. We win. We are the good guys. And before we move deeper into the story that Jesus tells in response to this lawyer's question, we have to realize right from the start Our self-justification needs are not benign. The need that we have to be able to justify ourselves doesn't just bring destruction for ourselves. It brings destruction to everything. It leads us to label people who are different from us so that we can feel good about not truly caring for them. It leads us to ask, yeah, but who really is my neighbor? If you were with us back in Lent, you'll recall that we talked about this similar idea. We said that the only category label that is available for Christians to use on other people is just one. Those for whom Christ has died. That's it. Now the genius of the story that Jesus tells in response to this question of who is my neighbor is such that it's effectively a grenade duct taped to the hands of the person asking it. Jesus takes a question that's designed for self-justification and completely redirects it like some sort of judo master. And this lawyer, who, like us, if we'll really hear the answer, hits the ground so fast and so hard that he has a hard time really telling what just happened exactly. So Jesus tells this story in classic joke format. There's a nameless, faceless moron who gets hurt on a dangerous highway where he should have known better. And then there are three people who interact with him, and we all know what to expect. There are sort of three levels of essentially the same type of person, and we're supposed to identify with one of them, and then we'll get the answer to our question. Who exactly is our neighbor? So if Jesus were telling this story to me as a member of the clergy, he would say, well, a bishop comes by, and a priest comes by, and then a deacon comes by, right? Or if he were talking to one of you, he might say, a doctor and a nurse and a medical assistant walk by. Or a marine and a navy seal and an infantryman walks by. Do you see how it works? It's supposed to be a joke that goes, a priest, a Levite, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests, and an Israelite. All Levites were Israelites, but not all Israelites were Levites, right? So a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite come walking along and they find this poor sap. But instead, it's a priest, a Levite, and gasp, a Samaritan. Samaritans, you most likely already know, were people of mixed race. They were part Jewish, which may not seem super terrible to us, but but to the surrounding culture, this was a huge tell, because that meant that their ancestors at one point had intermarried with the people around them, which was expressly forbidden in the Mosaic Law. Massive no-no. 
you don't intermarry with the nations around you. And the Samaritans were the descendants of those people. To make matters worse, these people still claimed Moses. They still claimed to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they weren't involved in the temple rituals of Israel at all. So they were heretics. They were kind of like a cult. So it's really a doctor, a nurse, and a meth head, or maybe a Marine, a Navy SEAL, and an ISIS bomber. But as I said, we've all heard this story, so we know exactly where the trapdoor is, don't we? Here's the problem. We don't know that it's only trapdoor number one. So yeah, it's shocking that it's the gross guy that ends up doing all the nice stuff for the moron in the ditch. But if we'll notice, we're now flat on our backs looking up at the sky because Jesus has just now judoed us. See, we, along with the lawyer, are still waiting for an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? But the question that Jesus asks back at the end of the story isn't, who is your neighbor, but is, which of these was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Or to put it another way, you cannot define your neighbor. You can only be a neighbor. Jesus has completely redirected this man's attempt at self-justification. The lawyer's question was about narrowing down and labeling the identity of others. But Jesus' answer to him is to get him to question himself about his own identity. Here's where the story starts to get interesting. This man being a lawyer means that he studied the, the Jewish scriptures for a living. Okay? And what he should have realized is that Jesus is telling a parable that is essentially historical fiction. Because in 2 Chronicles 28, there's this bizarre story in Israel's history. At this point, God's people now exist in two separate nations. The people of Israel have become divided into Israel and Judah, and they're all just a complete hot mess. At one point, Israel goes to battle with Judah, their own brothers and sisters, and they kill 120,000 soldiers and then take a bunch of women, children, and the leftover army as prisoners of war. And they plunder them, and they're getting ready to take them back as slaves. But a prophet of the Lord goes out to meet them and tells them they should not do this. And so, the chronicler records for us, the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners, and from the plunder, they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. The lawyer should have seen this coming. But here's the problem. We could finish the story here, and all of us would pretty much be thinking the exact same thing. If I work really hard at loving unlovable people, then God will have to give me eternal life, right? Then I'll get salvation. 
I mean, the guy asked a question about how to get eternal life, and the story ends with Jesus saying, go and do likewise. So that's it, isn't it? But who exactly are we supposed to be emulating in the do likewise part? I mean, notice that the lawyer can't even name the man who was neighboring, right? He doesn't say Samaritan. He can't even, this is like Voldemort territory, right? He can't even name this man. So how is this Jewish lawyer ever supposed to identify with a Samaritan hero? What does it mean to go and do likewise? Well, a couple of things. One, parables are meant to be head-scratchers. Jesus tells the disciples this in the Gospel of Matthew. He's, he's intentionally sort of subverting his own message in the eyes and ears of the people who are seeing and hearing. They're designed to make us reconsider the subconscious way we've been making our journey through the world. So if we come to this parable, like the lawyer thinking, if I just love the right people, I'll be okay, and we leave hearing that exact thing, then odds are we're not really hearing it fully. The second thing is that ancient authors often place their main points right in the middle of their story. It's like a big bullseye. They would sort of write like an hourglass and funnel down everything that they're saying and condense it into one really main idea at the center of their work. And this story is smack dab in the middle of Luke's gospel. And in the middle of this story is the line that tells us that the Samaritan was moved with compassion toward the man in the ditch. How does this apply to Luke's main point in writing out his narrative of the gospel? Well, I think the early church's ability to think creatively about scripture may be of some use to us here. So here's how the early church understood this parable. A man... And Jesus goes out of his way to make this very generic. He just says, a certain man, a man. In Hebrew, it would be Adam, is traveling down, literally down in elevation, hundreds and hundreds of feet from Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace, to Jericho, the accursed city, the city that had been devoted in destruction to God. And on the way, Adam, Adam, is beset by the minions of the devil who rob him and beat him and leave him mortally wounded by sin. They leave him in the ditch outside the city of God's peace. And as he lies there, the law of Moses comes by and cannot save him. And the word of the prophets comes by and cannot save him. And then an outsider of sorts comes by. This is one from whom we hid our faces, one in whom we found no beauty, no reason to seek him out, one who was rejected by the religious insiders of his day. Christ comes and brings what? Oil and wine. Oil, a symbol of anointing with the Holy Spirit, and wine, a symbol of Christ's blood shed on the cross for our sins, and he brings this man to the inn and tends his wounds, pays for his lodging and care, and then says to the innkeeper, when I return, I'll pay whatever is owed. And of course, Christ ascends to the Father. And the place where half-dead sinners are brought to be healed with the oil of the Spirit 
And the wine of the blood of the new covenant is the church. So if this parable is designed to get us to stop labeling others and find the right label for ourselves, we must primarily understand ourselves as those idiots who are fleeing the peaceful city of God. On our way to the city of destruction, left for dead by sin, and God, moved with compassion toward us, comes as one rejected by men, one that we considered smitten by God and afflicted, and he enters into the dangerous highway of the world, and at great cost to himself, brings about our healing and deposits us into the church. And if this is your story, then you can no longer conceive of yourself as a religious expert who walks on by the suffering. You can no longer conceive of yourself as someone who was born into the right circumstances or with the right skin color who can then walk on by the suffering because you know yourself to be the moron from the ditch who is lovingly cared for by the man who, if you'd seen him in any other circumstance, you wouldn't have given him the time of day, but he gave you everything. And you're transformed into an innkeeper. Do you notice how in this story the innkeeper doesn't ask any questions? Makes no protest? Doesn't ask for a credit card for incidentals? I like to think that's because the innkeeper was the dead man on the donkey a year ago. And he has come to know the goodness and faithfulness of the one who brought him to the inn of the church. There is a world of people who are hurting and suffering and corralling themselves into cliques to try to protect themselves and justify themselves, and it is tearing our world apart. And if we think of ourselves as another clique, we will walk right on by and be completely unbothered by the suffering of others. Or perhaps just as devastatingly, if we try to bankroll this by ourselves, the love and healing that the suffering person in our path so desperately needs, we will burn out almost immediately. Forgiving a friend who has wronged you costs something. Providing food and clothing for the poor, it costs something. Living a life of prayer instead of a life of leisure costs something. Being in committed relationship with other sinful, broken people costs something. But if we start to think that we're the ones footing the bill, then we're going to go from puffed up and prideful to burnt out and bitter and back again. And that's why every week we come here again to the foot of the cross and we kneel down at the altar of the inn of good credit to be reminded by the strange medicine of bread and wine that it's the compassionate king who paid it all.